Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast. Thanks again for joining me. My name is Andrew Sill. I'm the host of this podcast that is dedicated to all things radio control flight. We're talking planes, helis, drones, and everything in between. Well, another great episode coming up. Uh, special guest is Peter Goff. Uh, Peter is a well-known scale aero modeler down here in Australia. He's also represented the country in um, in scale competition internationally. So we will hear from Peter a bit later. But uh, before we get into it, let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. Well, the big news this week is really the Horizon Hobby Air Meet. It's something that I mentioned in last week's episode of the podcast. And what it is is basically every year there's a big uh, aero modeling event in Germany. Uh, and because of the whole uh, COVID situation, the event couldn't happen as usual. So it was turned into a, a live event, a live streaming event. So was held in Bavaria at an airfield in, now I don't know how to pronounce this, Donauworth. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't speak German. I need to ask uh, Martin. No, Bavaria, is Bavaria in German? Oh, I can't remember whether it's Austria or Germany. Anyway, it's, I, it's, I think it's southern southern Germany. Um, but anyway, the... Uh, Airmeet was basically an yeah, online event, uh, online live streamed event, but this it was done immensely well. They had eight cameras, and we're talking about professional quality stuff here. There was obviously a crew of people, microphone, the audio was great. They had uh, commentary, um, you know, with uh, guys over in the US, including our friend Ali Machinchi from Horizon Hobby, was commentating. Uh, he was based in the US, so they were getting the live feed and then commentating over the top. But they also had a team of people in Germany, and I think they may have even had some other countries in different languages uh, commentating as well through different streams. But anyway, it was an event full of awesome aircraft, and it, the way the, the the event ran was there were um, basically demonstration flights covering all genres of flight, from helicopters to three D aerobatics to jets. Uh, you know, a lot of turbine action, a lot of large scale kind of aeroplanes, and then of course featuring some of the Horizon Hobby planes. You know, we saw their new, their new Cub out there, and a Fokker, and you know, stuff like that. Anyway, uh, I logged in Saturday night uh, on the YouTube channel, on the Horizon Hobby YouTube channel, so you can actually still see it. If you go to the Horizon Hobby YouTube channel, you'll be able to see the event. They live streamed, they're still sitting there, and it will stay there, I dare say. But uh, awesome camera work. Like eight cameras, various different locations. There was one high up on some scaffolding or a crane to, uh, that really you know, looked down towards the runway. Uh, they had close-ups, slow motion. They had replays, slow motion replays. So, you know, once the flight was over, they could play some replays and then have some in interview some of the pilots and that kind of thing. And, of course, we had these expert comments uh, going over the top as well. So we're talking a really well-produced uh, event, uh, probably one of the best. It's the best I've ever seen from a, a live event kind of hobby event kind of thing. So well done, Horizon Hobby. Standouts for me... Oh, look, I really enjoy the aerobatic guys. Um, there's a guy flying a Tomahawk Aviation Futura jet and uh, put on a great display. I love seeing a jet flown 
aggressively. Uh, you know, everybody can do a high speed pass and a low speed pass, but uh, what about a knife edge pass low down in your jet? It's not too bad either. But uh, that was great. The Concorde, there was a model Concorde that was massive, and uh, that was a, a really great sight. And then uh, there was another, I think it was an Air Mac or something like that. Monster, it was like half scale turbine. Uh, and that thing was just monstrous. And I was saying that it costs, you can get one. There's a guy in Italy that builds them. I was saying on the on the live feed how you can buy one for 53000 Now, I don't know if that's US dollars or euros, but whichever way, you're looking upwards of $60,000 for the jet half scale. And it weighed something like 70 kilos. Uh, so that was that was good to see. And then um, they, they even went into the night. Uh, you know, as it got darker, they... they, they, they uh, had some really epic footage as the sun was coming down of planes flying, uh, which was awesome. In some of the turbines, you could see the glow from the engines uh, when you got a rear shot. So Air Meet Live, uh, if you go to the Horizon Hobby YouTube channel, you'll be able to see it. Uh, and you know what? I think this is the first uh, first of many to come. I, 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 it was just an amazing concept. It was just done so well. And even from an industry perspective, I put my marketing cap on. So I work in marketing. Uh, it was just such a good good job for all the different sponsors and Horizon Hobby to showcase their products. They, they had us captivated. So please go and check it out. Uh, Horizon Hobby's YouTube channel, the Air Meet Live 2020. Great job, Horizon Hobby, and all those that were involved. On to our special guest, and this week's guest, we're talking scale, and I was tracking this guy for a while on on Facebook, actually. Facebook's uh, one of my most popular forums that I uh, keep an eye on. Must be my age. A lot of young kids think Facebook's not cool, but I think it's cool. Uh, his name's Pete Goff, Peter Goff. Uh, born in Melbourne, now lives down in Newcastle, uh, avid scale modeler building some beautiful planes i think he's, he's building a, a wirraway at the moment and i saw some photos of it on facebook recently and it's just absolutely phenomenal uh pete competes in scale uh, he went to the last world champs in switzerland uh in competing one of the i can't remember the name of the category is it f4h or something like that i can't remember exactly but he was there with greg lepp who we've also had on the uh on the podcast and so it was good to catch up with Peter and just learn all about his hobby activities and what he's up to. So if you're into scale and you like good blokes, this is the one to listen to. So here we are, Peter Goff. Pete Goff, thanks for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. No worries, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll tell you what, isn't it great in today's day and age, we can have these kind of chats no matter where we're sitting. You're currently sitting in Newcastle, aren't you? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, and I'm down here in Melbourne, and I'll tell you what, it's crystal clear. The 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 uh, I'm amazed at how good Facebook Messenger is as a chat forum, especially for doing these podcasts. Now, Pete, your name comes up a lot, especially I see your name all the time on Facebook and stuff like that, especially around the scale scene. And we're really going to have a bit of a deep dive into your activity in that area. But where did your journey in error modeling begin? Well, initially, um, like most people, I suppose, very young. Um, I started when I was oh, probably four, I think, was the first time I picked up a transmitter, thanks to my dad. Um, my dad was an avid scale, still is an avid scale modeler, 
um, down in Melbourne, uh, where I grew up. Uh, he started back in the 60s. So basically, yeah, from the time that I could, uh, I was at the field from the time I was born. Mum tells me stories that they had to strap me to a fence when she'd go and help dad start models because all I wanted to do was touch the planes. Mm. So uh, the old story goes, you know, it's probably what drew me to it, the fact that I wasn't allowed to do it at such a young age. But, uh, but yeah, no, it started when probably four or five. Um, you know, I was, what, born in 82, so it was probably around the 87 mark. So we had the old Futaba Brown box. That was the radio yeah. that... Uh, that I started on uh, the old simple four channel. Um, and yeah, I had a, a small trainer that dad had put together for me. Uh, and I basically taught me to fly on that uh, combination of that buzzard bombshell and old, uh, old dihedral uh, old timer thing with an OS 44 stroke in it. And there was an old lolly popper and yeah, it just probably started from there really. Now, it, it's funny, you know, when you talk about that era, we're talking pre-simulators and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and now it's almost become the norm that, you know, you get on a simulator, play around a bit and get to the field and your orientation control is not too bad. What was the process for your learning? Was it a buddy box or was it just, you know, your dad grabbing the sticks if you were doing something wrong? Uh, it started as a buddy box, actually. Um, we had that had two brown box Futabas uh, from memory. And yeah, he would uh, buddy box with me. Uh, and I still remember the technique he'd teach me. It was always one control at a time. So which may, you know, a lot of people probably still use that concept today when teaching people. But basically, I, I'd get uh, I'd get proficient with the elevator or the aileron. And then he'd move me to the other, uh, or should I say rudder back then, because we didn't have four channel uh, <laughs> yeah. aeroplanes. It was all rudder and elevator. Um, but obviously the rudder would still be on on mode one. So the aileron uh, would be controlling the rudder, but I could also operate the rudder on the rudder stick on the ground. Uh, and yeah, he'd give me one, one channel at a time. And then once I was proficient with that and could coordinate turns, we went from there and it just built up to there. And I think it was about six months, but I went solo. At, at any stage though, when you were that young, like I wasn't born into it. Like you know, my dad wasn't into to model aeroplanes, I sort of just stumbled across it. I think seeing them in magazines, at the, the news agent kind of thing. But was there any sort of stage where you thought, no, I'm not really enjoying this? Because for you to stick with it, you must have actually been enjoying it. I loved it. It was, um, I remember growing up, um, I, you know, as I said, Dad was in, into scale, uh, predominantly World War I. Um, I didn't dabble into SCAR till I was probably 10 or 11, but I still remember just fast forwarding till I was about 15, 16, that my mates would always give me give me stick because uh, Saturday night I'd go to bed early because I was going flying with dad the next day. And um, no, right up until probably 17, 18 years old, I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, were you building at all? Um, I, yeah, I um, going back, um, I, there was a, buck, a small, a lot of it was, I never did a good job of it, obviously, back at that age, but Dad gave me some old kits. I had a, had a control line um, Bucker Youngmeister um, that I put together and um, had a small Thunderbolt, um, a few other little things that I uh, resembled a model plane by the time I'd finished with them. But, uh, but yeah, predominantly Dad, Dad did a lot of it and uh, taught me a lot of techniques. Probably I might not have been paying much attention back then, but I think collectively over the years it stuck with me. So, uh, but yeah, I didn't build a lot when I was a kid, um, probably 14, 15 is when I started to really look at the building side of it. Did you uh, 
Did you end up doing what most males do and get into cars and things <laughs> like that and then find women and it's all downhill from there? Or did you just keep on powering through with the hobby at the same time? Oh, I, I think that's a textbook uh, adolescent teenager, really. But yeah. uh, yes, I, I did. Yeah, I, uh, I had a hiatus. Um, I still did it around that 18, 19 mark. Uh, but then I, uh, I joined the military when I was uh, 21 and that was kind of when the hiatus really kicked in and I didn't do it for a, for a couple of years. But um, it slowed right down when I turned 18, yeah. Yeah, but you're, uh, you've come back. It's funny, yeah. I have, yes, yes. I, 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 was, I was into it when I was a kid and then I had this big hiatus and then uh, I always saw model aeroplanes as my retirement hobby. And I ended up bringing it forward 30 years or something. I thought, oh, well, I'm going to bring it forward now because I better learn now so that when I do retire, I'll be proficient enough to be able to fly and not have to go through the learning phase. But um, And I'm glad I did because I've just i got a fascination with the, these model aeroplanes and flying. So Now, you, you're known as a scale guy, as I sort of introduced you as. And, uh, you know, you've been... You've competed locally, you competed on the international stage as well. Was the scale thing something that you just adopted from your father or were you ever swayed to, you know, get into aerobatics or pylon or gliding or something else? Well, as a matter of fact, probably, uh, yeah, from about 12 or 13, uh, Dad and I used to do a lot of gliding because um, the scale back then, as you know, you couldn't really buy, well, you couldn't buy ARFs. And, and kits um, were really all you could buy, uh, the old top flights uh, or the pilot kits and things like that, or you'd uh, scratch build. So for me, I kind of did verge onto gliding a little bit. Um, and we used to go, as I said, we were, I was from the Keeler Club. So we used to go to Mount Hollaback a lot and we used to do some gliding off the cliffs around Tullamarine there uh, near the club. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, I did a lot of gliding, but predominantly my, my passion was, was scale. As I said, I think dad kind of soaked me in that. Uh, and yeah, I just, I just loved all things scales, particularly warbirds. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, like with the warbird thing, um, it's like my son, my son's what, 13, but if I took him to a car race meeting or, or something like that, or to a model flying field, he'd always gravitate towards vintage aircraft vintage cars it wasn't he wasn't into anything that was sort of modern looking which is surprising and i think kids nowadays can go either way but to have that 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 love of a warbird and of course they are among some of the best looking planes really you know i'm looking i've got a photo of a corsair on my computer at the moment i'm thinking that's just the they just don't make planes like that anymore like no. with so much character now so you You've been very active in in the whole scale competition kind of thing. When you look back so far, what are some of the um, notable builds that you've done? You know, some of you, some of your favourites that uh, that you've you know built. Um, well, for me, uh, again, I was I was very time poor um, and still am, uh, and I haven't done a lot of. Um, well, I haven't done any scratch-built aeroplanes uh, like the, you know, the likes of David Lorem, guys like that do. That's just, in my opinion, that's that's beyond me at this point in my in my life, and uh, and that would take a lot of uh, probably a lot more effort than what I'm currently doing. But as far as uh, the builds that I've done, um, I've done I was probably Brian Taylor 109. I did uh, oh, a number of years ago was probably my probably the nicest scale model I'd done back then that I was quite proud of. Um, but I've done, you know, Balsa USA stuff. I've done a, a pup and 
Fokker D8. And um, then I had an old Taylor monoplane a number of years ago. Uh, and as I said, um, some Thunderbolts. But uh, yeah, probably the 109 for me. The Brian Taylor plans are um, uh, probably unique in the case that they're an easy to build type of aeroplane. They've got a box construction fuselage, very easy to construct. Um, and yeah, that to me, that was probably. My favourite back then. Uh, I've got some some other toys now that have probably leapfrogged that, but yeah, that was one of my favourite back then. Well, it brings me to the world champs that you went to last uh, Switzerland. What was it last year? Wasn't it? Uh, well, two so, years ago now, actually, two it's years time ago. flown. Oh, I yeah, tell you what it feels yeah. like. I remember, I like I was sitting back here in Australia on the Facebook page, having a look at all the photos coming through from Switzerland, and just thinking. That is just phenomenal. Like the location just it was spellbounding and it just the what was going on and the way that we were getting these photos back. I was we were riding it along with you kind of thing. But so you were competing in which category were you competing in? So I was in F four H. So that's the one where it's not scratch built planes, is that correct? Uh no, you can enter scratch built aircraft, but there's a K factor on the design of the model. Yeah. So uh any the aircraft itself uh, there's a qualification criteria that it can't have won uh, certain F4C competitions. But other than that, you can fly the aeroplane in F4H if you've scratch built it, yeah. But right through to you just have to have completed the finish of the model. Yeah, okay. And so you were, you were in the team with uh, Greg Lett? Uh, That's correct. What yeah, was, and Anthony Ogle. Yeah, and what was your, what was your finishing position in that? Uh, I ended up ninth, so I, I made the top 10, which I was very happy with. Yeah, that's awesome. I'd be happy with that. And you yeah. were flying a Tiger Moth, weren't you? I was, yes. Um, originally built by a, a gentleman up here by the name of Alf Williams, who's a, a long-time uh, modeler, um, the likes of the Ross Woodcox and uh, and the Gary Sunderlands, those sort, that sort of era. Um, and built, he's built a lot of very, very nice aeroplanes. And I was very fortunate uh, about six years ago to, uh, to acquire that aeroplane. Uh, and it was built back in 2008, so it had had a decent life already. And uh, yeah, in 2016, after the Wagga competition, I decided to strip it and fix up a few things, and I built a new cowl, a new tailplane, and redid the undercarriage to match the uh, prototype that I was going to model. And I've always had a, a liking for the two-tone camo over, over yellow, so I chose that. Yeah, it's a nice scheme. So what are some of the, the specs on that plane? Like, what are we talking about, wingspan? Uh, so it's a true quarter scale, so it's 88-inch wingspan. It's a Duncan Hudson plan, um, and it's running an ASP 184 stroke with a converted to an OS Carby because uh, the ASP or Magnum, if you like, couldn't get it to tune. So uh, Elf converted that uh, a while back to a uh, OS Carby, and I haven't had a problem with it. And how does it fly? Oh, it's... It is magnificent. So boring if you're on the ground and not holding the transmitter. Yeah. Um, but f- as far as scale competition goes, on the right day in the right weather, uh, just the sound, the speed, uh, the look, to me it's, you know, and some people have told me it's probably one of the most realistic model Tiger Moths they've seen in the in the air. When you refer to speed, you're not talking about high high, high speed, are you? You're talking more about no, low no, speed? No, no, put people to sleep speed. Do you know what, though? <laughs> it's something about... Uh, the tiger moths that I really, really love. That it, it, it's the I think their presence in the air, and yes, they've got to be flying slowly. And it's just I don't know what it is about them, but they they're always nice to see in the air flying at a nice leisurely pace. So yeah, you know, some people might think it's boring, but 
like I've been up at the Shepherd and Mammoth event and you, you always get a few tiger moths there and just seeing them come past is just, uh, yeah. I, I don't know whether, because down here in Melbourne, you, you now and again you see the tiger moth flights coming past and um, they're such an iconic plane that um, it's probably one of, I was thinking about this oh, a few days ago when I was doing a bit of research on you and I, I could probably safely say that the tiger moth is probably one of my favourite biplanes. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's definitely got character, and it's it's it, yeah. Being in the military, I liken it to the familiarity of a C one thirty. Everybody knows what a C one thirty looks like: the silhouette, yep. uh, the sound. And I think from a from a vintage sort of biplane era, yeah, I don't think you can go past the Tiger Moth. Yeah, nah, big big fan. Now that whole experience of going to Switzerland, I've spoken to Greg Lepp and to to David Law about it. What was your experience like? Well, I was fortunate enough to have gone to Top Gun and competed there uh, in oh, 2013. So, yeah, I've been to Top Gun in 2012 and 2013 over in the States. So mm. I, I had a comparison to it and, and I, had a few, uh, I had a few ideas of what I would expect. Um, my, a good friend of mine, Anthony, was on the team in uh, 2016 when they went to Romania and, and him and I did Top Gun in 2013. And he came back and told me a few... Uh, a few ideas uh, on what, you know, what he thought I should do and, you know, whether I should compete or not and uh, gave me the comparisons. And uh, I tell you what, I think the fact that it was in Switzerland was just put it to that next level. It was, you know, it was literally a postcard everywhere you looked. And uh, I think Noel Finlay summed it up right, driving from the airport out to um, to where we were staying. Yeah, you, you struggled to keep the car on the road because you just wanted to look at everything. Yeah, I, I've never seen a, a place prettier than that to fly. Like the for me, I love flying at a nice location. Like it just it makes everything a bit more special to be just flying at a field that's got a great outlook. You know, and um, seeing those photographs and every plane looked absolutely. It, and also because I like taking photographs of model aeroplanes, every shot was going to look good because of the background image that was uh, that was there. What about uh, you know getting the plane over there and assembling and all that? It was a bit of a hassle. To be honest, no. So um, Melissa Lord, uh, Dave's wife down in Melbourne, did a great job um, coordinating the team effort, and, and as did other people down there um, behind the scenes that we didn't see. But for us, it was a pretty seamless transition. So um, we. Got it. We just had to take up. We built our boxes, obviously, up here and um, transported them by road to Albury. At which point, we had some um, some generosity from some Victorians that um, put them into the back of the car and sent them back all the way down to Melbourne. And uh, yeah, the assembly. I think Anthony had the biggest issue just because he had a Proctor Newport Twenty Eight, and it was he may as well have been assembling a full size aircraft. It um, it was certainly took him about eight hours to put together. Oh, so man. that was probably from one end to myself, probably two or three hours. I was fortunate that I could keep all the um, flying and landing wires already pre tensioned, and I just disconnected them from all the um, fastening points on the wings and basically laid them down with the interplane struts. Uh, so I, I kind of just opened it back up and connected it all back together. So, and of course, the Tiger Moth back in 2008 wasn't built to travel overseas. So I didn't even when I refurbed it, I, I tossed and turned whether or not to make a removable tailplane, and I measured it all up, and I was only going to save about an inch and a half based on the width of the undercarriage. So I thought for adding extra weight um, and doing all that redesign, I just didn't think it was worth it. Uh, so again, I didn't have to assemble a tailplane. It was already there. It was basically bolt and engine in. The biggest part, again, was putting the wings on. Yeah, nah. 
you you were lucky because yeah, I've heard some 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 worse stories than yours about traveling with big airplanes. Top Gun, you've mentioned Top Gun, and I, I love re- seeing US magazines where they they have models from Top Gun. How, how good is it? Like, how does that compare to say going to a World Champs? Oh, to be honest, they're, they're completely different. Um, the World Championships. If I had to be brutally honest, the World Championships is designed with the modeler in mind uh, and the pure modeler in mind for that F4 competition. Uh, so it has a purpose and it has a meaning. Top Gun is a commercialized competition, in my opinion. Uh, fantastic on a whole nother level uh, and a whole different level compared to World Championships. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot more people, for one, uh, a hell of a lot more aircraft uh, and a larger variety of aircraft because weight is not a factor over at Top Gun where it is uh, at the World Championships. So they both have their own pros that you could gravitate to depending on what you would like out of a competition. Is Top Gun in Florida? It is. It's at Lakeland Airport in Florida, yeah. Yeah. What's the crowd like there? Well, like how many spectators would you think would be in? Uh, to be honest, Andrew, I didn't actually notice in the whirlwind of being over there and you know my first international competition, but yeah. I'm told – over the five days they had uh, in the X of four or 5,000 people come through the gate. Um, So Frank Tiana does a lot of advertising leading up and obviously he's Mm. got Florida jets and monster planes when COVID's not on. He has all these other events throughout the year. So he's marketing and he's, and his ability to sell the events to the public is, is something he focuses on definitely. Yeah. They do a good job. Now, because I've got a scale gun builder, in our midst, like you've been, you've got an extensive history in building model airplanes when you think about all those years. And you talked about it when you were younger, how some of the planes weren't finished that great. But I think it's part of the process. I had many failures back in the day. And, you know, we learn from our mistakes, as they say. Now, what I want to do is I want to really get down to nitty gritty about building and and your opinion tips on on what you you would advise other people. So, when it comes to a building project, where do you start? I think it depends on the model. Um, for me personally, I I start on the things that I enjoy. Um, so for me, that's the fuselage. Uh, I hate building wings. Um, so for me, building the, the tailplane is really the first thing I start on most models. Um, and same as if I'm refurbishing a model, which I, as I said, I've done more uh, in recent years than I have building. But um, yeah, I would start on the tailplane and fuselage because I find it's the most complex uh, as far as things like undercarriage firewalls, tail incidents, um, all that sort of stuff, cockpits. And you've got to be thinking ahead, obviously, on where things are going to go, where are your batteries going to fit, where's your tanks going to go, where am I going to put ignition if it's a petrol-powered model. So I, I like to start on that. And most of the time I'm worn out by the time that's done. And then I start on the wing. Um, and that's kind of where the grind for me starts. Um, maybe one day I'll do it the opposite and see if it changes my, <laughs> my the outcome. You know, it's funny is that I'm a wing. I start with the wings because to me it's like the wings well especially with an arf i'm, I'm talking about an arf kit here um because yep. i haven't built a kit for a long time but even even back then when i built you know gliders and stuff i think i did the wings first because to me it just seemed like a a more simple thing to just get get the wings out of the way and then i'll i'll work on something but i in saying that no no it's true i i, I started i got this fascination about six years ago that i was going to scratch build a plane so i picked 
the easiest possible plane that I could possibly scratch build, which was a stick. And um, mm-hmm. uh, and it was, it's actually a scaled down stick to one meter wingspan. And uh, I started with the, with the wings for some reason. I do not know why. But anyway. Uh, oh, each, yeah, each, each of their own. Each of their own. Sure, a lot yeah. of people do, yeah. But uh, it's funny how you, you, you do what I consider to be some of the trickier things first. But um, okay, so let's move on. So you're starting from sort of the, that fuselage area, from the tail moving forward. Um, hinges. There's always a lot of debate about hinges. What's your philosophy on, on hinges? Are you going CA hinges? Are you doing robot style hinges? You know, what do you like to see? Most of the time, I'll use Robart-style hinges. Um, it, again, it depends on the aeroplane, and if you want a scale look, if they've got a pocket hinge like a, you know, like a thunderbolt, a thunderbolt or a Spitfire or something like that, I would normally use Robart hinges. Um, if I'm doing something that might have, like for example, or even the Tiger Moth, I did Robart hinges, but then the flight controls are covered over by fabric, so you don't actually uh, the joints, so you don't actually see the hinges. Um, but like my pup. Um, I just use Dubro um, flat hinges for those, but I but then I uh, pin them with um, skewers or whatever just to key them in uh, after I've glued them. So there's, um, but yeah, I prefer I lean towards robot hinges myself. I think they're quite versatile there. And these days you can buy the pocket hinges where you can actually remove them. You can actually glue the outer sheath if you like of the robot hinge, and you can actually have one one side be removable so you can remove. Uh, flight controls if you need to. That's a great, that's a great, um, I didn't know you could do that. That's an excellent little tip. I'd like to be able to remove them sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is with them, if you do need to um, cut off the flight control, they're easy to drill out. You just drill them out and then you can replace them. So. Yeah. No, and, and, and like I, I, some of the aerobatic guys that I know, they've had to replace their hinges. They just get worn out from uh, overuse, get a bit sloppy and they drill them out and just put some new ones in. Uh, and the, yep. they're, they're, yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the robots, robot hinges, especially for the larger models uh, as well. Okay, yeah. now um, covering materials. What are you? What are you using? Does it depend on the model, or have you got a particular brand that you like? Uh, well, it does depend on the model. Um, obviously, if it's a if it's a heavy metal fighter, you'd be using three quarter ounce gl- uh, glass cloth, um, G10 uh, glass. Uh, if it's a, like the Tiger Moth, uh, I'll be honest, it was a fragile airframe and I was lazy and had and I was time critical on getting it ready for uh, Switzerland. So I use Solitex. Um, the lot of, a lot of the guys up here and I've, I used it on my pup, uh, they use coverall, yeah. um, which is basically like a voils type uh, linen that you, um, for those that don't know what coverall is, um, you basically dope on the surfaces of the of the airframe that you want it to stick to uh, and then you lay it over the top and you dope back over the top and then you just dope the entire surface and it's heat shrinkable and once it's tight, it's tight as a drum and it stays that way. Uh, whereas Solitex reacts to UV, it can loosen up on you. Uh, the only problem with coverall is if it will continue to tighten and if you heat it too much, you will crush the airframe. Oh, really? Is that strong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very strong, yeah. you got to be careful because especially with covering a wing, it can be easily warped. So you've got to try and you dope and heat the top and the bottom of the wing evenly so you don't so you can keep them straight and not get a warp in them. Oh, gee. I'd muck it up. But, yeah, to me, um, I, I would lean – Solitex is easy. For me, I, I – 
again, I, I'm lazy in that regard. I would use Solitex if it was still available. I have a small stash that uh, I keep for emergency use, but um, I think if I do another uh, fabric-covered aeroplane, it'll yeah, I'll go to coverall. Yeah, okay. Uh, motors. What's mm. what's your philosophy on selecting a motor? You know, have you got any brands that you like, or you know, sizes, or? Um, pet- you can't really go past a petrol. Um, I've got a couple of methanol engines in a Bristol Bowfighter. Um, that again, you know, they are they're too unpredictable uh, methanol engines. You can get them right, but I find petrol engines are uh, are the way to go. Um, I've yeah, I've got some DAs. I've got a Moki two fifty, um, and so I've got a, I've got a couple of radials, and then I've got a Sado, a couple of Sados with a Sado ninety going in the in uh, the Wirraway. So it depends on the aeroplane, I suppose. Um, I I don't like to over engine my aeroplanes, but I also like to have that scale, the ability to be able to fly the aeroplane around. Uh, where the engine's not working too hard and the aeroplane's flying at a realistic speed. That's actually a really good philosophy. You know, there's always there's always been this tendency for people to just overpower their models all the time. But I think when it comes to scale, you've got to find that right balance. And and like you said, actually, I was talking to someone today about this. You know, there's nothing worse than seeing an engine that's being stressed to its limit to keep the plane flying. That if you can just sit in its sweet spot. It's just going to be a lot better all around, I think. But, um, yeah, matching. I was interesting to talk to David Law when he was talking about his pits and how he had a, a 120cc and he's gone back to, I think, an 80 or something like that. And, 70, um, yeah, yeah, 70 twin. Yeah, it's 70 twin. And how that actually improved the flying of the model, uh, you know, the, the wing loading improved and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I don't think we necessarily need to always overpower things, especially in that scale kind of thing. We really want it to fly scale-like in the kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you want the power there to, to you know, to get you out of trouble. But, um, I mean, I had a Moki, I had the Moki in my third-scale pup and a couple of people, um, you know, I took it to the field one day and a couple of people said, geez, you know, we pay, people power those on a Zanella G62. And I said, yeah, you're right, but I'm swinging a scale-size prop and I've retarded the carby to third third throttle on the on the throat. So at full throttle, I'm only, you know, third on the, on the, uh, on the carby. So, and it chugged around. The engine wasn't working hard. I wasn't, you know, wearing the engine out, and it sounded great. So yeah. there's a, there's, I suppose there's a bit of a truth to both both sides. It just depends on the aeroplane and mm. and and how you match the engine to it, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. The big question: survey selection. I think it's probably the most asked question. What survey should I put <laughs> in my plane? How do you go about survey selection? I'll be honest. I keep it simple. Um, I don't. I don't go over the top with my servos because I fly a lot of warbirds. And even on the full size, if you look at the amount of deflection on a, on a control surface, even to do a roll, it's minimal. Um, so there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of force on the fly control. Um, so most of the time I, uh, I only use six, four, fives, high techs. Oh yeah. The, uh, the old faith was analog. Yeah, so I, the analogs, you're not using the new digital version or. Um, no, I had some, no. I'm not at the moment. I did have some uh, some five six four five digitals some time ago, um, but uh, no. I, I mean, I've got I've got JR eight eight five double ones in the in the Corsair because it's a much bigger aeroplane. Um, you know, it's twenty odd kilos, hundred and ten inch. So it's there's a lot of a lot more 
force, um, but I would use bigger servos on flaps, things like that, uh, providing that I've got mechanical advantage and I'm not on the stops and burning servos out and things like that. Uh, and I also use a high-quality servo on the throttle. A lot of people forget throttle. They just think, oh, well, it's only the throttle that's only moving, you know, so far. There's not doing much apart from moving a push rod. There's no actual force on the servo, but so many times, and it's happened to me uh, as well, so many times throttle servos fail because people put cheap throttle servos in there and that can bring a model down if it's at full throttle and, you know, you've got to wait for the, for the tank to run out or... You know, it can, it can trip you up sometimes. So, uh, yeah, it just depends. Most of the time, I'll, I'll keep it pretty simple. Um, I've got a jet as well. That's got some higher-end servos in it. But, yeah, predominantly, I just stay with 645s. Yeah, and what about um, down the chain, your servo chain? Are you are you with a power box kind of man with power distribution or what do you do? Um, I, I run Jetty, um, the... Um, Czech brand so they've they've got um central boxes which are similar to a power box in regards to a servo distribution system um but again depending on how many servos i'm using am i using one servo per flight control um have i got you know corsair for example has got four flap servos so those sort of things i tend to use a power box sort of setup where i can expand channels um but predominantly i will use a central box for those sort of things, but uh, smaller models, no, I just use a uh, dual battery system uh, with a uh, single receiver with Jetty obviously has the advantage of the dual receivers, um, but yeah, very basic setup most of the time. Are you running, smaller models. Are you running any telemetry with your Jetty system? Uh, I'm, it depends on the aeroplane. I am on, uh, on a Dauntless. So I've got a twin Sato 57. I'm running a MT 300 uh, temp sensor. Um, on the Tiger Moth, I've got a G-meter uh, that I'm running now um, just so I don't overstress the aeroplane out of loops and stuff. It's a bit of a gimmick, to be honest. I don't need it on a Tiger Moth, but it's there, so I thought I'd play with it. Um, but uh, other than that, I really only run temp sensors on multi-cylinder engines. Yeah, okay. So generally, you're trying to keep things as uh, as simple as possible, which is I'm a big believer of as well. Yeah, just keep it simple and reduce the points of failure and go and have a fly. Uh, scale detail. Uh, it's something that scale modelers always love doing. Is it something that you enjoy doing and have you got any tips around that? Uh, that's, that's my favourite bit, to be honest, Andrew. Um, I've always been a little bit artistic and, yeah, I, I find finishing a model, which can sometimes take as long as constructing it, um, to get the right look. Um, tips, don't overdo it. Um, obviously put on there what needs to be there but I suppose when you come into the weathering stage um, yeah, not telling yourself to stop uh, and you know, be able to say that's enough is, is the hardest part um, but yeah I mean if you want to go, go all out and put all the detail on then if you've got the documentation to prove it and you can replicate it fill your boots you know, it's endless really yeah as Dave Platt uh, wrote once, he said, "You never finish a model; you just stop working on it." Yeah, it's true. The with the uh, the weathering side of things, that's something that, that just the sound of it makes me nervous. That I can just see myself stuffing it up. How do you weather models? Uh, it is simply a trial and error. Um, what you see as a finished product certainly doesn't start, uh, or you know, the transition process changes on so many levels. Um, 
actually someone asked me this the other day, um, you know, would you be able to show me how to do weathering on a, on a, on a wing? And I'm like, well, I could, but you'll probably think that someone else did it when I'm doing it because you'll be like, I'm an amateur because I try something and then I rub it out and then I'll try something else. And if it doesn't look right, I'll, I'll clean it up. The beauty is I use pastels a lot of the time. Uh, and then once I'm finished weathering, I clear coat the aeroplane so, to seal it. So the beauty of pastels is that you can rub it back uh, if, if you've gone too heavy or, um, or the like. So it's hard to describe or show someone to do that sort of weathering. I think that oily, stainy, grubby mm. look, mm. it's just, it's really, you just got to get in there and give it a go. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you think it really just comes down to that in a lot of, lot of situations where it's just give it a go and don't expect that you're going to get it first go? Yeah, yeah, and it's whatever you're happy with. I mean, if you know, by all means, pick people's brain and, and you know, people that you know, people like Phil Crandon and, and those guys that have been doing it for such a long time and, and are experts at it. Um, pick their brains on basic concepts and basic materials and what they use. Uh, but then once you've got those ideas, just go and give it a go. And yeah, you, you'll make mistakes. I'm, I'm still making mistakes today. Um, you never get it right the first time, but that's the fun, isn't it? The journey of getting it to where you want it. Yeah. And you talk about you mentioned some of these names and and learning from them. Where are you getting your inspiration nowadays? Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, a, a good group of guys around me um, that that we all fly with. Uh, not necessarily on every weekend, but uh, between Sydney and probably Coffs Harbour, uh, up that eastern seaboard. There's about eight or nine of us that are right into scale models uh, and scale modeling and, and flying and, and competition. So we've got group chats and, you know, we try and see each other pre COVID uh, as much as we can and just inspiration from there. Um, and I still speak to my dad once a week. He's still, he's down in Ararat and, um, and I send him photos when I'm doing updates and the beauty of my old man is he's, he'll call a spade a spade. So if he, if he tells me that, uh, oh, you know, you could probably do a bit here or this is, a, you know, it doesn't look quite right. I kind of go back and I try and fix it. So I suppose he's he's my, he's who I sanitise my stuff through. And if I, I feel if my dad's happy, then everyone else will be happy. Yeah, that's a good philosophy. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> what makes a great model for you? Um, I suppose it, for me, if I walk out to a flying field, it's got to be, I like unique aeroplanes as well. Um, so, you know, not taking anything away from Thunderbolts. I've had a few myself, but everybody's got a Thunderbolt and everybody's got a Mustang. I think if there's a model that just pops out of the pits and you go, wow, I haven't seen one of those before, or, you know, that looks like it would be a really nice aeroplane and I gravitate to it. I think the uniqueness of the design uh, and I suppose by doing scale models, you can see how much effort someone's put into theirs. Uh, and you can look at what they've done and know how difficult that would have been to replicate. And to me, that that in itself is enough. Like if I can see that that work's been done, then then the model you know stands up to me. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Now, where are you mainly flying now? Uh, well, unlike you guys, we we're still uh, allowed to fly. Yeah, don't um, rub it in. So. <laughs> we're all going crazy down here in melbourne i can tell I you know. like the I the i got a message from a friend today and he said uh how are you going i said well what do you reckon my, my, my brain's turning to mush 
<laughs> and and today we get news that we could be in this lockdown kind of situation until the end of September. And I'm thinking, uh, I'm running out of models to work on. I'm, I'm literally down to the too hard basket because they've come off yeah. the too hard shelf and, and you know, got to keep occupied. I feel for you guys down there. It's definitely must be difficult not being uh, not being not only getting out to fly, but just general day to day stuff. Must be yeah, must be hard. It literally is. It's just it's just it's just like this clouds hanging over you. I wake up in the morning and I think, well, why do I need to rush to get to work? There's not much to do today because you yeah. know, my customers are sleeping. But uh, we'll get through it. But yeah, what club are you a member of? So I'm uh, the city of Maitland uh, Aero Modelers Comsoa. Um, so we're out probably geographically, you would say we're between the wine region and the beach. So we're about half an hour inland uh, from Newcastle. Uh, and fortunate for me, the model field's about 900 metres over my back fence. So Ugh. for me, it takes about three minutes to drive to uh, drive to the field. So all my mates are a bit envious of me, but I am the weatherman now. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> actually, that's, a great, that's, what, that's what every club needs, is a person that lives yeah. near the field that you can uh, just ring up and say, what's it doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So no, we've got a great club there. We've got about 70 members. Um, we've just had a change of committee. So um yeah, looking forward to some some positive change. Um, but yeah, a few of that group that I that I'm uh, part of uh, fly at, at Comsala, so we see each other as often as we can. And and we're not just flying buddies; we're like we're really good mates too. Like yeah. best man at, at at Anthony's wedding and things like that. So the, the relationship goes beyond the model field. Yeah, that's always good to see when you when you find that group of mates, you you connect on so many different levels. It just makes everything so much better. I reckon. Yeah, and and you know everyone's always wanting to do something something more. You know, like mate of mine, Craig. You know, he he kind of introduced us all to the radial scene, and, and we all kind of got excited yeah. about that. So we all kind of started to gravitate towards that, and yeah, it just builds from there, really. It's funny how that happens. Uh, how you, this I call it the movements. The movements start. One person buys a um, you know, a, a jet, and then. You know, then you want to buy a jet to be part of it, and then somebody else buys a jet, and there's all these, yeah, you've all got jets kind of thing. And then I don't know we go and buy FPV drones or something, we're racing drones around, and uh, you know, seeing it that's where the spark is. We the spark starts with seeing it, but um, you, you mentioned you had a mocky, what have you got? Yeah, yeah, what yeah. have you got that in? Uh, I've got a calf course there. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, so I've had, had that for about. Ooh. What are we now? 2020, probably about four years now, three years. Um, don't fly it very often. It's just obviously with COVID now, especially, but just getting it in and out of the trailer. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mission, but it flies. It flies great. It flies absolutely unbelievable. Um, it is uh, the reason why they call them calf planes, the best flying planes on the planet. They are uh, they are very good. But uh, yeah, I've got a Moki 250 five cylinder. Is there a bit of maintenance involved with those, isn't there? Yeah, and again, it's it's not something that I'm an expert at as far as maintaining the engine. Um, again, I've got mates that uh, I feed off to try and get advice, but you know the usual. I do the tappets every five or six flights, uh, or at least check them. Now the Moki's about, you know, it's quite an old, uh, early version Moki, so the tappets they don't move anymore. So I just oil oil up the oil up the uh, the rods and everything occasionally, and just try and keep some oil up to it. And, uh, but they can, they can. You got, they're not just like the old OS forty-two strokes, mate, where you can throw a bit of methanol in yeah. and start them up. And they do, they take a bit of care. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you're in the air force up there in uh, Newcastle. What are you doing in the, in the air force? Uh, by trade, I'm an avionics lamey. 
Uh, so I've been doing that for 17 years now. Uh, but I'm in management now, so I'm kind of off the tools, have been for, for quite a number of years now, um, but up there on the uh, E737 AWACS at the moment. And, uh, will they move you around a bit, do you think, with your job? or? Um, well, they do. I've lived in 14 houses in 17 years. So, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so the other half, um, yeah, she uh, she's very tolerant of not only my hobby but my job. So uh, I try and balance it as much as I can. Um, but, yeah, as far as work goes, it's I've got a bit more stability now. Um, but, yeah, if we're not moving, I'm travelling. Yeah, that'd be tough. And having to move all those model aeroplanes would be a pain too. Like mentioned, yeah, that's correct. Need to move the whole shed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I have defence, thankfully, that moves my house every time, but I move the aeroplanes. So, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't let the removalists do that. So, with uh, your busy work life, how often are you getting out to the field? Uh, well, at the moment, because we're not really travelling, um, I'm trying to get out there once a week at the moment, uh, weather permitting. Uh, yeah, we're not too bad up here in uh, in the Hunter Valley. A lot of the a lot of the crappy weather passes us um, over the inland areas, so we, we more often than not get most of the, most weekends are flyable, uh, and yeah, try and get out at least for the morning on a Saturday or something like that. Uh, ring around and see who's who's available, uh, and then maybe after work, I'll uh, I'll shoot out in a, on an afternoon or something and send the boys a photo afterwards when they get angry. <laughs> Rub it in. <laughs> Yeah. I'll tell you what, it, it seems like this distant memory now down here in Victoria of when we could actually get out to the field and have a fly. But I'll tell you what, as soon as they open up, the, the clubs are going to be packed and, and we'll be coming into like oh. great flying weather down here and it was just it's going to be mayhem. And just imagine the amount of new aeroplanes that are going to be on the pits. Oh. It's going to be fantastic. I can't <laughs> wait. I've got so many planes to either re-maiden or maiden that uh, like uh, the first lockdown was a novelty because it was like, oh, well, I'll just stay and build some model airplanes and finish a few projects. And then all those projects get finished in the first lockdown. You get the second lockdown. It's like, what do we do now? And so I'm playing a lot of guitar. It's one thing I'm doing. And uh, then after that, I'm, I'm not sure. Just going getting numb. Now, uh, what do you think your next project will be? Is, you know, being an era model, there's always something else that we, we've got our eye on. What's your eye on? Um, I'm actually going to do, uh, I'm going to go back to the building board and do a Grub and Wildcat. I've got a Jerry Bates uh, Wildcat 93 inch uh, that I'll be uh, doing. So I'm looking forward to getting to that. How long do you think it'll take you to finish that? Oh, don't ask. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, with, yeah, I've got a busy year coming up next year, so I've got a couple of little, like you said, too hard basket things that I want to knock over after the wear away, but um, I'm hoping I can do it in 12 months. Yeah, no, it'd be good going. It gets hard, yeah. doesn't it, at this stage in our lives, yeah. trying to well, juggle everything yeah. when you're busy with work? Yeah, I'm at that point, you know, where you've got family and, you know, you've built a house and, you know, you're in that middle part of your life where everything else is happening and modelling by virtue just takes a second back seat really well the way that i see it is that yes it's that difficult phase i'm in the i'm in the middle of it with with young kids and all that kind of stuff and busy with work and paying mortgages and all that kind of stuff but i can see the light at the end of the tunnel i'm sort of 46 so i can see the light at the end of the tunnel where the time will start to free up and I can't wait. I can't wait to be. I see the old guys at the flying club and I go, I can't wait to be like you. And I'll put my hand up. I'll come and cut the strip. You, you name it, I'll be there. <laughs> I'm just looking forward to it because, you know, that's what I want to be doing. It's my retirement hobby. I just, 
wish yeah. I could retire yep. earlier rather than later. Now, there's there's one question that I always ask everybody, and that is, what has been your favourite model? Uh, I've, probably, I've got two. I can't pick one, but I've got two. Um, I suppose for competition, I'd have to say my Tiger Moth. Um, it's, yeah, in all the planes that I've flown in competition, it's the one that I think is, for me, is suited best to be able to present the aeroplane how I need it to be presented. Um, but if I want to just strap in and hold on, I've got a Zeroli Hellcat with a DA100 twin in it on smoke. And that thing, it's, it was built in America. Um, I'm not sure it's life on how it got out to Australia, but uh, it's 52 pound uh, and you feel 52 pound of it uh, and it moves the air. So that thing's a hot rod. So I think those two probably for different reasons would be my pick of the bunch uh, excellent excellent reasons you know very very valid reasons as well but no well done well pete you know thanks for joining me but thanks for the, the work that you're putting in even online and and motivating people by putting photos up and getting involved in discussions it actually uh helps everyone and so thank you for doing that and, and being so active in that scene and being uh sticking in with it for so long since you were since you were a young kid and you know what i think that you're not going to stop anytime soon no i think i've i think it's a commitment that i've made for life andrew but uh yeah, yeah. i've hopefully just happy to give back to to people and you know um and see others uh doing great things and promoting the hobby that's what we need yeah well you're doing a good job and i i hope one day our paths will pass at a at a field somewhere and uh i can see you face to face so uh yeah. big thank I'm you sure they will no worries. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, Peter Gofford, joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. Always great to have these guests. And uh, I've loved every single one of them. Every single guest uh, I've interviewed really adds something to to us all, I think, in some way. I always say that everybody's got a story. Uh what you'll notice with the history of the, the guests we've got, we've got some big name people and then we've got some lesser name people. And that's just the nature of podcasts. You can't have, uh, you run out of big names. It's hard to get some of the big names actually, but uh, there'll be more coming. But I, I actually really enjoy just talking to the average modeler and hearing their story about how they got into the hobby and, and that kind of thing. Because we've all got a story to tell. You know, we, we see some of the, the shining lights like the Jace Deuces of the world. And yeah, he's got a great story to tell, but you know, he's just like you, you and I. Uh, he's just another aero model that just happens to be quite good at it. Uh, and But uh, there's plenty of us out there. So uh, we'll gradually get around to, to all of you. Now, if, if, if anybody's got some suggestions of people who that they'd like me to interview, just get onto the uh, Flat Out RC website and send me a message to the contact page, flatoutrc.com.au. And uh, happy to uh, see if I can line up a few guests that you might want to hear. Now, I still am on a buzz from this Airmeet Live event, and, and I just want to talk a bit about events. And I know that we, we you know, there are not a lot of events happening around the world at the moment, uh, a lot being cancelled as a result of the COVID thing. But the good news is that I, I think people are getting more positive about a vaccination, which means we are going to end up getting out of all this and we are going to return to our normal practices. And so it means that we're going to put on events and oh, I just can't wait to get to an event. I, I want to get back to the flying field, but I just can't wait to meet up with new people and, and just get out there amongst other avid modelers and, and, and enjoy their company. So 
events are a really good thing. So what are some of the things and how we can improve the event experience? Because I think we've we've got stuck in this cookie cutter routine where we just all turn up and go through the motions, but how can we bump it up and to the next level and really give a memorable experience to uh, to um, everybody that's involved? And there are little ways that we can do this, and it starts by um, you know, your approach, and that's what I want to talk about a bit today, just to, to share some thoughts and maybe spark some thought and discussion around how you can make your next event uh, more memorable. So I think, yeah, it starts with really setting out with a goal to make an event special. And we know that there are givens at an event. We know that there's going to be flying. We know that that's the majority of what's going to happen. But what about, what can you do to go beyond just that? Yes, that's all organized. You know that people are going to fly. So some little things like um, the coordination of the day, uh, what experience are you going to give the pilots? You know, are we going to let some demo pilots run some run some demo flights and then maybe talk about their flights and share some knowledge? Uh, there was the the, the we- Wings Over Western Port event uh, a couple of years ago. They did a video out on the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. You can see it. And they ran a great event because it was a mixture of sort of fun fly plus uh, coordinated flying. And I think that coordinated flying, especially when you're running that multi-category kind of event where you have, you know, say for example, you're running a, a, like the, the Shepherd and Mammoth event. You could have a session for aerobatics planes, a session for World War One planes, a session for World War Two, session for civilian planes. And what that does is uh, keep things rolling, then the jets come on, et cetera, and all that kind of thing. And then the commentator, having a commentator there, like Shepherd does have a commentator. I think the commentary, adding commentary to your event can uh, add a different... Um, different aspect as well and something that i know that the jet guys uh, at some of their big events are, are looking at doing is trying to bring this commentary kind of thing because it's you know, when someone's talking about the model they're, they're sharing the, the, the information about that model and often we see a plane flying and we wonder what motors in it you know who owns it who built it what's the history of that plane so again yes the flying's going on but you're going further by sharing that information uh Food's always a good thing. In the US, they love putting on a great spread with food and make a big deal. That's something that the guys down here in Victoria at the uh, the Stoll competition, uh, the first ever Stoll competition, did a great job that they really put on a great spread with, with the food and they made that a key point. And again, it was about a differentiator from other events. Let's not just have great flying, let's just enjoy each other's company, have a nice meal as well. That's another good one. Uh, you could you could add some you know fun competition aspects of it uh, into your event you know uh, if you want I know some people do like limbo comps and stuff like that I know at the China Top Show they they did limbo and things like that and basically you end up with a pile of planes on the ground actually the good one in China this year was a competition where you'd have to take your plane off and then you'd have to turn the engine off uh, we're talking well it could be electric or gas but you had to turn your engine off and you had to land do a spot landing that was a that was got the crowd involved and even things like that. The crowd involvement um, at the Stoll Comp this year, uh, when I was working with the organisers, one of my suggestions was that we need to make sure that the crowd is close to the action to to heckle. We want the hecklers. We want to have that fun vibe. We had music playing. We had, we we encourage people to pit and you know put their planes near the main strip within safety reasons. You know we went right up on the edge of the strip, and actually we all did that. We all set up our planes near the takeoff area. Uh, and we all egged each other on, and the whole vibe that was created at that event was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, so 
whole lot of random ideas. I'm rambling on about different ideas. But the other big thing I'll always talk about is the promotion of the event and promotion pre the event and post the event. So don't forget that just because the event's over doesn't mean that it's over. That uh, That's why I've been shooting a lot of videos at events for, 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 for clubs because it's it's a record of that event and helps to promote future ones. And the more eyes that see the event, the more might that might want to turn up. And so when I've, I've been to some events and the organizers have been disappointed with the uh, with the, the the crowd, well, one, either their concept wasn't good or two, they didn't promote it enough. It simply comes down to that. Well, three things. Well, no, two things. It's got to be the right kind of events. You've got to target the right kind of thing that's going to get numbers. And secondly, you need to promote it. And uh, often there's not enough attention paid on on those two aspects. But if you do, then you'll get the numbers. And through my own experience, the more effort you make in the promotion uh, aspect of the uh, the event, the more numbers that turn up. You need to start months out from the event, build the hype, uh, and uh, and again make sure you're promoting something that you know makes sense. You know there might be some special guests. You know invite some great pilots there to do some demo flights and use that as a pillar to promote. So I'm rambling. I know. Um, I have a lot of ideas in my head. Sometimes they don't come out very clearly, but I hope there's a few there that might help you when you're organizing your next event that might happen in 2021. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, that's it for the Flat Out RC podcast this week. Thanks once again to Pete Goff for joining me. And of course, all of you that are listening and that have subscribed to this podcast. I've, I've realized that I keep on promoting that the podcast is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but it's actually in a lot of other places as well. I know that it's on the Google podcast platform and a whole heap of others. Just search Flat Out RC. I'm also putting them all on the Flat Out RC website. So if you go to flatoutrc.com.au, you'll see every single uh, podcast episode there. So please, let's build this following. Tell your friends if you like it. Don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC Facebook and Instagram pages and the YouTube channel. Uh, so get on board with the Flat Out RC movement. Now, what's coming up next week? I really don't know. Lining up a few guests. So we'll be back though. That is the good news. So until then, keep safe, keep well. And uh, if we're locked, if you're locked down like me, chin up. We'll get there. We'll be flying in uh, no time. Say why Bonnie and Clyde A classic cliche We're on the run This is what we waited for